I'd like to have you turn to John chapter 6, verses 15 through 21 in your Bibles this morning. I've entitled this message, Life-Saving Bread, and I hope you'll understand why in just a moment. You might be saying, well, we've already learned a little bit about life-saving bread when we saw the very first part of this particular chapter where Jesus had gathered together a lot of this multitude, or this multitude that came around Jesus had, had gathered, and they all sat on a hillside, and he, and he spoke to them and taught them, and, and then he fed them. He fed them a multitude of people numbering close to twelve to 15,000 people. The only number that we know of is 5,000 men and their families. So anywhere from twelve to 15,000 people were fed that day from a little boy's lunch. Certainly that was life-saving bread for many of them. But as we are so close to the season of Christmas, and actually in the season of Christmas, it brought to mind a couple of factors that uh, we see in the Word of God about Jesus. One factor is that of light. The importance of light. Just recently we know that the festival of Hanukkah took place. And the festival is called the Festival of Light, even though Hanukkah means uh, dedication. It was about the rededication of the temple after the uh, uh, cleansing of the temple back in 164 B.C., in the time of Judas Maccabee. But light is significant both to the Jewish faith and to us. Because light was, was, the, was the first thing that was created by God that we know from the scriptures. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And light has been a, 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 an essential factor in our understanding of the coming of Messiah. We know that because in Isaiah chapter 9, and it's not going to be up here because we, this was just a little bit of added stuff. But in Isaiah 9, we're told, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in the Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them has the light shined. And that was pointing to the coming of Messiah. Interestingly enough, in the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali would be the, the area of the Galilee where Nazareth would be and where Jesus would grow up. Light is a great factor for us to understand here, even in our study today, as you'll see. But the second factor has to do with bread. Bread. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But he also said, I am the bread of life. 
And bread has been a major factor in understanding the person and work of Messiah from the very beginning. Because from the time of the children of Israel being in bondage and captivity in Egypt, God at the moment when he was about to deliver them, commanded them to make bread. And bread has been an essential part of their understanding of God's deliverance. From the time of the first Pesach, Passover. Unleavened bread. And it continues on in, in, uh, at every Passover Seder, at every Shabbat, every weekend where the Jewish people, the bread... Interestingly enough, we know that Jesus, when he came to this earth, would be born in a little tiny village that was called Beit Lechem. Beit Lechem. Bethlehem. Beit Lechem means house of bread. With those two factors in mind here, in this time and season, and Going hand in hand with our study, I point you to the next passage of this gospel, chapter 6, John chapter 6, where we'll study and begin today with the verse that we ended last time, where it says, when Jesus therefore perceived, and this is after he had fed the 5,000 men and their families, and after the disciples had collected 12 basketfuls of bread, and after the men that had been blessed by what Jesus did rose up and said, hey, listen, this has to be that prophet that was spoken of. Speaking of Messiah. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And when even was now come, which means when evening was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea. And entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they, they see Jesus walking on the sea and, and drawing nigh unto the ship. And they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship. And immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Have you ever had to take a pop quiz? How many of you have ever had to take a pop quiz? Now let me see your hands. There should be most of us here, okay? Some of you didn't raise your hand. I think you, you just, you're still in denial. Maybe you need to know what a pop quiz is, okay? So it is that sudden, uh, unexpected test which takes you by surprise. Now, I know there are a lot of teachers here. Now, of the teachers here, how many of you kind of give pop quizzes from time to time? Let me see. All right, good. See, now teachers, are, they're, they're really obedient to what I, you know, they, they really do what I tell them to raise your hand if you, you know. Well, they love pop quizzes. Now, they probably don't love them, but they give them anyway. 
It, but, the, but the pop quiz isn't like, like the final exam for which you spend, you know, the previous night cramming. Get all that stuff into your head for one test. With, with, with a pop quiz, there's no warning. You walk into class and the teacher says, take out a sheet of paper, class, because you're going to be tested. Well, the disciples are about to get a pop quiz. They have just been through an incredible but glorious day. After sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing him teach the multitude, they watched him feed between 12 and 15,000 people with five barley crackers and two sardines, and they helped to distribute it to all the people that ate all of that food. And by the way, what Jesus did that day wasn't done with mirrors. There was no trick photography involved. There was no sleight of hand. The disciples felt the bread. They felt the bread coming from Jesus' hand to theirs. And then it became more than just bread. It was like loaves because this is how, the way it's described in our text. They kept, Jesus kept distributing and they kept taking it and they would come back. I'm sure they were coming back with a quizzical look on their face and wondering. But nonetheless, they kept distributing this bread. And eventually they would distribute the fish. And then not just two little fish, but fish, fish, fish everywhere. Until all the people not only ate, but they ate to a tremendous satisfaction. And the disciples felt the bread. They saw it happening. They experienced it. They were part of it. And then they picked up 12 basketfuls of, or baskets full of leftovers. That, that was the lesson. Folks, that was the lesson of the day. That was the lesson. It was a lesson in the power of Jesus, and it was a lesson in his sufficiency. But now they have been exposed to the lesson. It's time for the pop quiz. The quiz itself takes the shape of a strong storm. And Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king. Folks, it wasn't time yet, was it? He understands, he knows all things, and he, he sees what's happening. He departed again into a mountain himself alone. Now, I just want you to listen to the wording here as we go into the next verse. He departs up to a mountain alone, and when even was now come, his disciples went down into the sea. He goes to the mountain the disciples go to the sea. And they entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. That tells us something about what was going on here. And you'll see in a moment. The sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. And straightway, and by the way, the word straightway, that's kind of English, British English, which means immediately. And straightway he constrained, constrained his disciples. Oh, wait, you know what? I'm, I'm getting way ahead of myself. I don't want to go there yet. Forget that. The sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. Okay. Going back to verse 15 has to be the prelude to the event in this passage of our text. As we studied last time, the crowd was about to take Jesus by force and make him king. But the danger was... 
The danger was that the disciples could also be swept up in the excitement of the temptation. And so Jesus instructed them to set sail. Now, remember I said, you know, look at the, the way it's written here. You might say, well, where did he instruct them? We need to understand one thing, and I, I know that I've, I've emphasized this before. From John's account, we might, have, we might have the impression that the disciples abandoned Jesus and left him stranded. But that would be reading into the text something that's not there. So I want you to turn now to Mark 6. Okay, now turn to Mark 6, because that's where we are. Mark 6 and verse 45, it says, And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethesda, uh, Bethsaida, I should say, while he sent away the people. Now, two words are important. I already mentioned about uh, straightway, but the second is the word constrain, and we'll get to that in just a moment. And when he had sp uh, sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. So the word constrained here in verse 45, while in most modern translations is, is simply the word made, Jesus made the disciples to get in the ship. It's important to note that the word literally means that Jesus made them of necessity. He made them of necessity get into the boat. And, and, and the emphasis in that particular thought is that Jesus, to some degree, helped them get into the boat. There was not going to be an argument here. They were to get into the boat. So he is constraining them, making them, helping them get into the boat. And you have to see it this way. That's what the word means. There are other words for made, to be made in a certain way. In this particular word, constrained, it is, in the, in, in the Greek, that forceful. This is what Jesus was doing. Out of necessity, they had to get into the boat. I'm, drawing, I'm, I'm trying to draw you the picture here so you can see what Jesus is doing. The disciples were operating under the strict instructions of Jesus. He was the one that sent them away. Now, get this. Jesus told them to do something, and they did it. Now, that shouldn't be a, a, a revelatory issue, you know. I mean, the disciples many times did what Jesus told them to do. But in this particular case, listen. Jesus tells them to do something, and they did it. They were doing what Jesus told them to do in the right place and at the right time. And they still found themselves in the middle of a storm. They still found themselves in the middle of that storm. There may be a number of us here right now in the middle of a storm. But some of you may be thinking to yourself, especially when you know that you're in the midst of a, a, a storm. You may be thinking these words to say to Jesus, Lord, what did I do to deserve this? I've done what you said. I've been obedient to you. What did I do to deserve being in the middle of this storm today? The fact is, it may be that you've done nothing wrong. It is possible to be completely obedient to the Lord and to find yourself right in the middle of a storm. Now, if you're reading this passage and thinking that it sounds pretty familiar, I want you to know that you are not alone. The disciples must have experienced 
uh, a similar sense of what some people call today deja vu. Like, I've already been there. You know, it's, it's like Yogi Berra used to say, it's deja vu all over again. And though it is not mentioned in the Gospel of John, the other accounts make us to understand that this was not the first storm the disciples had encountered on the Sea of Galilee. They had been out there, you know, out there before. As a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, we, we, we looked at that account in Mark chapter 4 about, about being on, on, on the sea, and Jesus was in the boat, but he was there in the back of the boat asleep. And they had to wake him up, you know, Lord Jesus, oh, wake up because we're dying with the storm, the water's coming in too much, and you know. And they're going frantically crazy, you know, to Jesus. And, and he just gets up and speaks to the storm, and the storm stops. You all know, we read that. But now there's no Jesus on the boat. And consider the conditions. The evening had come. It was completely dark. Now around here when it gets dark in the evening, lights go on. Street lights go on. We turn on the house lights. Unless you've got one of those, you know, really high-tech stuff that turns the lights on for you, whatever. But lights go on. So we, we never really deal much with a lot of real darkness. But if you've ever been to Israel, and those of you that have, and, and we've always stayed right there on the Sea of Galilee, if you take a walk at night and you get a little bit away from the light, it's pretty dark, man. It's really dark. But there's still a little light. So can you imagine in those days when they had, you know, they had little lamps that were just little clay pots with a little oil in it and a little wick in it. That was their light. Can you be on a boat that's got water coming in because of a storm and those lamps are still on? No way. It was dark. And Jesus was nowhere to be found. But more than likely, and I emphasize more than likely, please hold on to this thought, more than likely, there was something in the boat that should have comforted the disciples. More than likely, there were 12 baskets of leftover bread which bore testimony to the power and compassion of God. We don't see that. But it's more than likely true because those 12 baskets were for them. They bore testimony of Jesus' power. They bore testimony of Jesus as one who fulfills the need of those who are lacking. And if those baskets were visible to them, they should have realized that the God who provided for the needs of the multitudes would not fail to provide for them in the midst of this storm. You know, we are oftentimes guilty of the very same thing. 
we are oftentimes guilty of the same thing. We've been blessed by the Lord in an abundant way, but when the storm comes, we at times forget. When we come to the table of communion today, I want you to think of this. The world may be telling you something in effect. I, I, this thought came to mind the other night because I, I heard this song from back in the 70s, you know, there was a, a song that, uh, you know, uh, if I say piano man, you know who it was, you know, Billy Joel. That kind of, you hear this, this song, you know, about being in a bar and, and people are there to drink, to forget. And so in effect, the world is saying today, hey, just drink to forget. We come to the table of communion today and Jesus says to us, drink to remember. Drink to remember. Take and eat this bread and when you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. You see how backwards the world is about things? Here's something else to consider. Being in the dark causes fear. The threat and the danger and the emotional strain of the storm was to be much more intense because of the darkness. They couldn't see anything. There was no way to have light where they were. And usually in a storm, even if the moon is, is, is partially visible, uh, with the clouds and the storm and the waves and everything crashing about, you couldn't see it. It couldn't give any kind of light. A person in spiritual darkness cannot see. A person in spiritual darkness can never see that blindness becomes the danger and it becomes the strain because they don't know what lies ahead. Trouble, sorrow, difficulty, loss, even death. Jesus dealt with this in the Sermon on the Mount. Right after Jesus talks about where we lay our treasures, when he talks about laying up our treasures in heaven, where no one can steal them, where neither moth nor rust can destroy, where to lay our treasures up in heaven. The next thing that Jesus talks about in, in, in Matthew 6, verse 22 is this. He says, the light of the body is the eye. If, if therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Now I'll explain that in a minute. But it's the next verse when he says, but if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? To best understand here what the Lord is saying is, is to read Proverbs chapter 4 verses 25 through 27. So let's read this along with that thought and, and, and build an understanding of what he's saying. He says, let thine eyes, it says in Proverbs 4.25, let thine eyes look right on. 
In other words, let your eyes look straight ahead. Let your eyes look directly forward. And let thine eyelids look straight before thee. And this is dealing with how we are to look at life now as believers in Jesus Christ. We are to look forward upon the path that he has given to us to follow as believers in Jesus Christ. Notice the next verse. Ponder the path of thy feet. Ponder the path of thy feet and let all thy ways be established. Ponder where your feet are going. Consider where they're supposed to go. Remember, if you will, Psalm 119 verse 105 that says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That involves light, doesn't it? <clears throat> Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We are to ponder the path of our feet. Let our ways be established on that path. We know who the path is. Notice I didn't say we know where the path is or what the path is. I said we know who the path is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto the Father except by me. And then it says, turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. Do we see here the necessity of light in our lives. And what Jesus was, was saying in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, we are to have, in other words, we are to have our eyes open with singleness of purpose in the things of God. We are to have our eyes open with singleness of purpose in the things of God. Think about character. The character of every believer is to reflect the glorious light of God's word, to reflect the glorious presence of Christ in us and with us as evidence and testimony of walking in the light as he is the light. It's about light. Why the emphasis of darkness on that night? Because eventually the light will come. Our attitudes, for example, when we talk about character, our attitudes toward one another as brothers in Christ comes into light as well. Our attitude or attitudes. Take, for example, what John tells us in 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11. He says, he that saith he is in the light. <clears throat> you know, we, we, we need to take this very seriously because sometimes we think we're in the light when we're not. We know better because we know where we are with the Lord. You know, we, you know the Lord says, hey, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So don't be deceived. We know. So listen, he that saith he is in light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. You check your hearts on this. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is no occasion of stumbling in him. There's none occasion of stumbling in him. So if we're in the light, we're not going to stumble. That's pretty simple. Let's stay in the light. Stay in the light of the glory of Christ. 
Stay in the light when it, re- when it, when it, when it involves our need to, to, to strengthen our love relationship with one another in Christ. But then notice in verse 11 it says, But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not where he goes, because that darkness has blinded his eyes. Can that happen to us as believers? This is written to believers. Do you understand now? That it's very easy for us to slip into darkness. Okay, I know that was a song by war, slipping into darkness. Okay, just get it out of the way now. All right. And you're thinking, who's war? Uh, I forget, you guys are young. Okay, okay, sorry. Sorry about that. But I'm just just trying to bring you to, to the attention here. It is easy sometimes, once we take our eyes off of the light of the glory of Christ, to slip into the darkness of the world. And so a person in spiritual darkness will definitely face difficult times ahead. I mean, that's obvious. If you're in your darkness, you don't see. And you can't see. Being in darkness, they will be caught totally unprepared. They will be in darkness about God, about how to call on God to receive strength and help. It's a dangerous time. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18 says this, I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Now he's using the Gentiles to describe a condition that we have to stay away from. Don't walk as the Gentiles walk. He says, you have not learned Christ that way. This applies even to nations, folks. This applies even to nations. And I need to, sit, I need to set this in here for us to understand. Psalm 82, verse 5. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk out... They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. Does that sound familiar today? How many nations have forsaken the God who has created them as nations? And we live in a nation today that from the top down is forsaking our God, forsaking the God, the creator of the heavens and the earth and the Lord Jesus Christ. But talking about darkness and fear, let's add something to the scenario back on the Sea of Galilee. Let's look at verse 19 because it says, so when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, which means he was drawing near to the ship, and they were afraid. The Gospel of Mark, once again, fills in certain details in our account. So when you go to Mark, the the next passage from where we were before, Mark 6, verse 47, it says that when evening was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he 
alone on the land. So now we know that, you know, the kind of get a little picture of where things are. Jesus on the land, and, and the boat is out in the middle of the sea. And, and he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. So the wind is blowing them one way or another, and they're trying to go one direction. The wind's taking them another direction. And, and, and about the fourth watch, which is really late at night now, uh, the fourth watch he, uh, of the night, he cometh unto them. So he comes to them, walking upon the sea. He's walking on the water. And would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out. We'll stop right there. I thought it was a ghost, and so they cried out. Now, I know we probably could read some words about that, but you know, I, I just sensed that the first cry that they had was, Ah! Just cried out. I don't, I don't like horror movies. Don't tell me if you do or not. I don't much care. But I don't like them. You know, why, why, why look at the horror of this world and those ugly, bloody pictures, you know? But I bring it up only to say that, you know, when people watch it, you know, they just, they just, people get freaked out. Then they got, they got professional shouters in, in, in the movies, you know, the girls are going, you know, they, you know, I think they, they actually, they actually, uh, you know, go to auditions, you know, for the, you know, who can shout the loudest, and, and, ah, you know, whatever. Have I said it enough now? Yeah, I, I'm done. No more crying now. But there you are, you can't, you, they can't see anything, right? Nothing. No light. But now they see Jesus. And they think he's a ghost. Therefore, there was some illumination to some extent by Jesus to show them who he was. I mean, think about it. We know what he did on the Mount of Transfiguration. He showed his glory. Couldn't see any other way. But the question that we need to ask here is, why did Jesus come walking on the water? And I know you guys, so I want to tell you, don't say that he just wanted to get to the other side. It is more than that he merely wanted to get to the other side. Jesus walked on the water to teach his disciples something. But what? It was not to teach the disciples how to walk on water even though we know that one did. There's a storm. Jesus is walking on the water and calls out to his disciples, come to me. The only one that gets out of the boat is Peter. And as long as Peter kept his eyes on Jesus, he walked on water and he went to Jesus. But as soon as he took his eyes off of Jesus and put them on the storm and on the waves, he started to sink. We know the story. But in this particular case, Jesus is walking to them and they're all afraid. He's not walking on the water to teach them to walk on water. Folks, they never learn to walk on water after this. And most people running around today claiming to be able to perform miracles have problem with this one. 
You listen to somebody that tells you, oh, I've done this and that, and I've done this miracle and that miracle. I say, yeah, can you walk on water? Let's go. Take you to us. Got it there right now. Get out there. Actually, you can't, you can't walk on, on Oscarate, but if you just get in, it's only four feet deep. So, I mean, you can wade yourself around. Why people say things that they say. Jesus, aside from saving his disciples from imminent disaster, he simply walks on the water to prove to his disciples that he is able to walk on water. Now, now stay with me here. He is always able to do the impossible. Jesus is always able to do the impossible. He is always able to do that which we could never do. Why do they need to know this? Because he was going to send them out to do the impossible. He was going to commission these very ordinary men to go out and to make disciples of all men in every land. You know that some people would say, impossible. That's just impossible for this group of Disciples. They're not natural born leaders. They weren't even seminary graduates. But they will eventually accomplish the impossible because with God all things are possible. The book of Acts tells us that they turned the world upside down. Twelve men that were fishermen, tax collectors. Common people turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Here they are on the boat. They're frightened, perhaps bordering on going into shock, perhaps thinking that the death angel or a premonition of their death was at hand. They saw what they thought was a ghost. But the point is forceful. The point is forceful. The storms of life can cause a sense of horror, of impending death, and can strike an awful fear in our hearts. But consider the words of the Apostle Paul. Paul, who went through every sort of affliction as, a, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, who was beaten for the sake of the gospel, who was left for dead for the sake of the gospel, who was in shipwreck for the sake of the gospel, and everything that he did was for the sake of the gospel, and he could say this. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses nine and 8 and 9, he says, we are trouble on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. You know that, that some of the church forsook Paul, but Paul knew that Jesus would never forsake him. He said persecuted, but, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Folks, I hope you see the importance of this attitude of the Apostle Paul. Who looks at everything that he can see as only temporary. We called it a light affliction. 
in another passage. This is just light affliction, folks. Paul, being human, was a man who could fear, just like the apostles in the boat. But he could turn away from fear immediately to the answer to all fear. Because the answer to all fear is Jesus Christ himself. The answer to all fear is Jesus himself. In verse 20, when all of this chaos was going on in the boat, and then they see Jesus and, and, and are just spooked. It says, He saith unto them, It is I. Be not afraid. Now let me modify this. Not modified, but actually tell you a little bit of what it says in Greek and English. Jesus saith unto them, Ego eimi. Do not be afraid. Ego eimi. Not talking about let go my ego. Just get it out of your mind. We've talked about this before. The pop quiz is coming. Ego, I, Amy, am. That's what it says in the Greek. We translate it here for the sake of, of, of proper grammar. It is I. Do not be afraid. But the words are, I am. Don't be afraid. So it's at this point that Jesus calls to them and instructs them not to be afraid. The way in which he says this is particularly interesting, as I've already mentioned. But there can be two ways of taking what he says. And both are good. And both are right. As I said, on the one hand, the Greek text reads, Ego eimi, which is the same phrase that is used by the Greek Septuagint in Exodus 3.14 to render the words of the Lord, I am that I am. Moses asks the burning bush that's not consumed, who is it that sends me back to Egypt to deliver your people? Who shall I say is sending me? What is your name, in other words? And out of the bush comes the words, Ego Amy. Fully understanding it is, I am that I am. I am that I am. So Jesus at the boat is saying to his disciples, Ego Amy, do not be afraid. Jesus is saying this to point to the fact of his deity. But on the other hand, and, and again, this is something that goes hand in hand with what he says. The same phrase can be understood in the way that it is translated in our Greek text. It is as if Jesus was saying to them, It is I, the same Jesus with whom you have been traveling, 
the same Jesus with whom you have been eating and sleeping and ministering. You don't have to be afraid of me. You don't have to be afraid of me. So you can take the phrase both ways, but, but just remember that it is still a call for them to cease from being afraid. The light has come to the boat. The bread of life has come to save. And he is saying in effect to his disciples who he would love to the very end. He says to them, listen, guys, I'm not the problem here. I'm the solution. I'm not the problem. I'm the solution. And what then is their response? Look at verse 21. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. In fact, he comes into the ship, there's peace, and eventually they get to where they're going. And they come to port. <clears throat> and we come to Christ because we willingly receive Jesus into our lives. And now there's peace. And the assurance that we will arrive safely to our port in heaven. It is a very significant thing to receive Jesus into your life. Something to note here, having Christ present and hearing his word to fear not are not enough. Can I say that again? Having Christ present and hearing his word to fear not are not enough. Just having him there and him saying do not fear is not enough. A person must willingly receive Christ into their life. Notice that deliverance came to the disciples only after they had received him into the ship. But there's another thing that I saw, that I see in, in this particular passage where Jesus is there and he says, it is I, be not afraid. It reminds me of something else. It's almost as if Jesus is right there by the boat knocking on the wood of the boat and saying, behold, I stand at the, at the ship and knock. If any of you are listening to me, let me in. Sound familiar? Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And I will sit with you and I will sup with you. How important it is for us to realize the need to receive Jesus willingly into our lives. In fact, in chapter 1 of John, notice that it tells us in verses 11 through 13, he came unto his own and his own received him not. Now there were those that did, but many did not. He came to his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Always remember and I'm going to close with this. It's, it's time for us to come to the table of communion. But I want you to remember a few things. So if you're taking notes, really write fast. But there are some things that you need to remember. I want to leave you with this. First of all, always remember that if you follow Jesus, 
Always remember that if you follow Jesus, there will be storms. Got it? That's one. Always remember that if you follow Jesus, there will be storms. Secondly, always remember that Jesus never denies the reality of the storm. Jesus never denies the reality of the storm, and neither should we. I've heard people talk about the fact that they're going through things, but they don't want to admit it. They say, oh, no, I'm not going through anything. No, no, no. I've got to stay positive. Dude, Jesus is taking you through a storm so that you can draw nearer to him. Don't deny the reality of the storm. Because Jesus does it. He knows you're right in the midst of it. Thirdly, always remember that Jesus is bigger than any storm we may ever face. Always remember that Jesus is bigger than any storm that we may ever face. And lastly, somebody tell me to wait. All right. I can only wait three more seconds. All right. <laughs> And lastly, remember this, that the purpose of the storm is to get us to see that our Lord is God and that he alone is the master of the storm. He alone is the master of the storm. So are you ready to take a pop quiz? Take a piece of paper out and mark down this scripture, Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Folks, that's a promise. Will you trust God in that promise today? Will you trust Jesus in that promise today? Will you? Some of you will. Some of you must be thinking about it. Will you trust God with that promise today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your light. Thank you for your bread. I thank you that you sent Jesus to be the light of the world and the bread of life. I thank you, Lord God, that today we can come and honor you and bless you with our praise and thanksgiving. I pray that you, Lord God, will teach us more and more about yourself as we look to the day.